way, way back in the mists of time, distant past, in a time before color TV, before TV had more than three channels, definitely well before iPhones and the like. My brother Nigel and I had a game we occasionally played when it was raining too hard to go out and kick a ball around out back. Pick up sticks. So if you don't know this game, imagine about 30 bamboo skewers, all with a range of different colors painted on their two ends. Now you held them in a bunch in your hand close to the table and then released a hand and just let them fall in a higgledy-piggledy pile. Once they settled, the game was to remove them one by one from the pile. Now, if you did that and nothing shifted in the delicately balanced structure, well, you got to keep the stick and with the attendant points, the colors at either end told you how much each stick was worth. So the single... There was only one of these, but it had black on either end, and that was definitely worth the most. And then there were a bunch of green sticks, maybe 10. Um, They were worth the least. But if you were trying to do that and the pile shifted at all, well, you had to stop and your turn was over. I think this is the first memory I had of a game where the goal was to remove things. That was the level of expertise. This wasn't Lego or Monopoly where you were striving to build or striving to accumulate This was surgery. Welcome to Two Pages with MBS. It's the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. Lady Klotz is a professor at the University of Virginia. He's also the author of one of my favorite books about change, Subtract, hence the pickup stick story. Now, There's a really good reason you find this on must-read lists for design and behavioral science and change. I'm actually just about to start writing a primer on change, and this is going to be one of the the seminal texts that I'm going to be writing about. Now, we all take detours in life. Nobody's life path is a straight highway. Um, Turns out that being an author and a teacher is Lydie's detour. For the first half of my life, I was I thought of myself as a soccer player. That was my identity. Um, I, I grew up as a, a kid playing soccer, played through high school, chose my college based on soccer, where I could kind of start at forward as soon as possible and uh, and also get a good education. And then uh, I actually played professional soccer for a couple of years after college, uh, making $2,000 a month. So I wasn't Lionel Messi. When Lady left soccer behind, he returned to his education. He'd earned a degree in engineering and worked for a time building schools. And he initially enjoyed that work, but... I don't know, this thing happens after college where all of a sudden you're, there's no summer breaks anymore. And after about three years of not having summer break, I'm sitting there thinking, oh, this is the job I'm going to be doing if I don't like change something. Laddie wanted to contribute more to the world and do so in a way that created a life that he enjoyed. That turned out to be research and teaching and surrounding himself with like-minded people. Most of my closest collaborators are behavioral scientists. And so I, I think I study the science of design and that's where, you know, subtract came in is like the science of taking something from how it is to how we want it to be and subtracting is a basic option there that we, that we overlook. But for all the brilliant people that Lady associated with, it was a toddler, just three years old, who taught him one of the most important and overlooked tools of design. The closest to like an epiphany moment was playing Legos with my son. Yeah. And um, 
So I had uh, here. You can see this is the this is the actual bridge we were playing with, and oh, that's uh, great. It's um it's not level as you can see, and so my instinct was to turn around, grab this block, add to the shorter column of the bridge. Um, by the time I before I could do that, my son Ezra who was three at the time. He's eight now and has a soccer game tomorrow, but he was three at the time, and he removed a block from mm -hmm. the longer column to make the level bridge. And I mean, I think I'd always. I knew that we kind of had this tendency to add, but right in that moment, it kind of really put the, um, gave us a way that gave me a way that I could think about it and study it and like yeah. focus in on the actual thing, which is like, it's not the end state of less. It's like, what, a, what, what makes us think when we're trying to improve something like that, the adding is our first instinct or that we yeah. add even when subtracting would be just as good or that we add when subtracting could be even better. And and for those of you who are listening rather than watching on the YouTube, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, Lady held up um, uh, five bits of Lego. There were three blocks on one side, a, a little flat bit connecting it to two blocks on the other side. And that was the, the uneven bridge. So do you add or do you subtract? I guess, Lady, I'm interested to know when was the moment when you went, you know, I love, I love the making of things. You know, I, I, when I was growing yeah, yeah. up, we played Legos or Lego, as we call it in Australia, without the S on the end. And um, my brother, Nigel, just had this ability to take a, a drawer full of Lego because we didn't have the kits in those days. Yeah. And he would just make stuff. And I actually didn't have that ability. I would watch him and kind of like, I want to, <laughs> I want to make all the blocks the same color because I like, I have got a design in essence uh, to me but i'm wondering where where you first noticed that kind of flame around creating or building i don't know that i have that uh i mean i do i have huh. the noticing flame like i i definitely yeah. when i go into a space i see the buildings and i see the even see the geography but i, I so i notice the stuff that's built around us but i don't necessarily like you wouldn't want me to build your house for you. I'm not like a tinkerer. <laughs> uh, so I think where I add is like in the, in ideas, like I like thinking about the, the ideas and adding them. And I certainly have an affinity for the things that we add to the world to make it better. I think those are interesting. Definitely. I mean, and I played a lot of Lego, but I'm not, I don't think I don't sound when you describe your brother, he sounds more advanced than me at Lego. Right. Yeah. Well, let me ask you another question about your past, if I can. Yeah. How do you think what you learned being a soccer player influences how you show up in your current ways of working? I think what sports are really good at um, is just creating this uh, artificial, of course, but creating this simulation of life, right? Where, yeah. um, and so like I learned how to lose lost <laughs> half the time or be right. and be really disappointed. Like learn, like feel like, Holy cow. I put everything I had into that worked with my teammates, tried as hard as I could. And the ball hit the freaking post and bounced mm. out and the other team scored. And it's like, there's just, uh, and so learning that also learning that if you do put effort in it, again, it's a, like a very controlled thing, but yeah. you can see the output of that very quickly in a relative scale, right? I mean, if yeah. you're working on ideas or working on a book, it, it takes forever. But if you're playing a sport, you can practice one day and use it the next day in the game and it, yeah. see, see it work. So I think just like that, that distillation of life down into this 
kind of game form, I think has been, gives you a lot of those experiences in rapid time that you can then just draw on uh, as you move through the rest of your life. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I, I, as I think about my life as a soccer player and I still play, but now it's at a very slow pace with a bunch of other old men like me, we totter around a, a game together. But I just, I, it was a place I noticed that I understood patterns. Like I was, I, I, I was yeah. a defender. Uh-huh. And so I could see, I could understand what was coming at me and figure out how to be in the best position to be of most utility. Yeah. And um, I feel like that's where I really started to learn that and see that and notice it about myself as a, as a strength and a bit different from other people. Yeah, that's interesting because I love seeing that. Uh, like I'm coaching the under 10 team right now of yeah. Ezra's and you, this this is emerging now, right? You're right. seeing some of the kids and some of the kids are really good at like kind of, I would think like defensive patterns, what you just described, yeah. where yeah. they're always like, we don't teach them. I mean, we teach them a little bit about spacing, but they're just like naturally in the right spot on defense. Yeah. And then other kids like my son Ezra is really good at offensive patterns. He's always like, scoring and it's just because he's like popping up at the right spot and you're like how is he learning this and so yeah i think that's fascinating i also think a really cool thing is i mean now when you play right somebody you've never played with yeah you know where they're gonna be they know where you're and it's like and it's like this instant brotherhood or that like right. oh yeah you're a good person because you know where, <laughs> where i'm gonna run on the soccer field or you're yeah. or you're not a good person because I, ma- I make the run and as a 55 year old man making a run yes. i've given it everything okay I'm, I'm no good for 20 minutes after making a run so if you don't feed me the ball yeah. come on man you're dead to me yeah exactly yeah <laughs> that's the end of our relationship yeah, if i exactly. make an overlapping run and you don't give me the ball yeah that's, an, that's exactly right hey um <laughs> that's awesome this is a perfect segue to ask you uh, and to tell us about the book you've chosen to read from. Okay. Well, there's this amazing author, Eduardo Galliano, and I figured the World Cup's coming up. He has yeah. unequivocally the the best soccer book of all time called Soccer in Sun and Shadow. Um, and he's a, he's a Uruguayan guy, uh, and he, he writes kind of – all of his writing is really interesting. Um, and he writes kind of in a poetic uh, – historical, political, I, you'll see. Um, and that, so there's a passage from this book in soccer and sun and shadow. I figured some of your, all the passages are great. I figured some of your audience would be interested in like what's relevant to coaching. So he's got a passage called the manager. Um, and so I would like to, to read that. Well, look, before you get going on that, how did you come across this book? I mean, when did it come into your life? Uh, I like reading all these, like how soccer explains the world books. Um, there's some, <laughs> like, uh, there's one that's literally called that, but then there's, you, you know, there's a great one about Holland and how, um, how, you know, kind of soccer evolved the same way that culture evolved. And then, uh, as you explore into those, they all reference this one and then you're, and then, you know, you that's look great. at the lists and this one's at the top of all the lists. And I had to go to this. You could write the Australian one. I don't think there's an Australian one yet. There's not, but you know, I'm listening to a podcast at the moment called "The Rest Is History." Okay, and um, two two British historians who have a great chemistry together, and they're literally going through each of the 32 teams that are in the World Cup to talk about some story vaguely connected to soccer and yeah. football and that, that country. So maybe I can write about the uh, the few Australian players who've kind of broken through. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's All right. Awesome. Well, Lady Clots, over to you reading um, Soccer in Sun and Shadow. Brilliant. Okay. 
the manager. In the old days, there was the trainer, and nobody paid him much heed. He died without a word when the game stopped being a game, and professional soccer required a technocracy to keep the players in line. That was when the manager was born. His mission? To prevent improvisation, restrict freedom, and maximize the productivity of the players, who were now obliged to become disciplined athletes. The trainer used to say, let's play. The manager says, let's go to work. Today they talk in numbers. The history of soccer in the 20th century, a journey from daring to fear, is a trip from the 235 to the 541 by way of the 433 and the 422. Any ignoramus could translate that much with a little help, but the rest is impossible. The manager dreams up formulas as mysterious as the Immaculate Conception, which he uses to develop tactical schemes as indecipherable as the Holy Trinity. From the old blackboard to the electronic screen, now great plays are planned by computer and taught by video. These dream maneuvers are rarely shown when the matches are broadcast. Television prefers to focus on the furrows in the manager's brow. We see him gnawing his fists or shouting instructions that would certainly turn the match around if anyone could understand him. Journalists pepper him with questions at the post-match press conference, but he never reveals the secrets of his victories, although he formulates admirable explanations of his defeats. The instructions were clear, but they didn't listen, he says, when the team suffers a big loss to a crummy rival. Or he dispels any doubts by talking about himself in the third person, more or less like this. The reverses the team suffered today will never mar the achievement of a conceptual clarity that this manager once described as a synthesis of the many sacrifices required to become truly effective. The machinery of spectacle grinds up everything in its path. Nothing lasts very long and the manager is as disposable as any other product of consumer society. Today, this crowd screams never die. And next Sunday, they invite him to kill himself. The manager believes soccer is a science in the field of laboratory, but the genius of Einstein and the subtlety of Freud is not enough for the owners and the fans. They want a miracle worker like Our Lady of Lourdes with the stamina of Gandhi. That's fantastic. Um, that made me laugh the whole way through it. And if you're listening and you're wondering what all those numbers were, those were ways of explaining the setup of teams on, on the field. Yeah, I was um, going to... I was going to cut that out, but then you said you were interested in soccer. So yeah, I, I'm yeah. like, well, I'll give them the, the formation. <laughs> exactly. Starting at the two, three, five, which is how I learned how to play soccer. Two defenders, three midfielders, five, five attackers. Um, what did you love about this chapter, lady? Uh, I mean, I love the, I mean, the, it's, it's exemplary of his writing. I mean, and the title of the book again, soccer in sun and shadow. And the, the book's almost like a Rorschach test of your, yeah your your disposition because i read this and i'm like i see all the sun stuff and i gave this to my friend and he was just like that book's way too depressing and so i think you can see it as like okay this is depressing like soccer's yeah. like falling into this very mechanistic way of doing things but then seeping through that cynicism is the fact that like of course people are are working against this and of course you know he's in laying out that cynical approach he's pointing out that there's also a way to do it to do it differently and that people yeah. we still find joy in the game even with it being kind of bludgeoned out of the game in some ways so um that's uh that's what i liked about this yeah. passage i love yeah. that too how do you find your balance between play and work i mean you know you set up this kind of trainer versus manager let's play yeah. versus let's go to work yeah how do you find that balance um 
I think a lot about like flow states, right? Where, mm. you know, just like being working at the limit, not, <laughs> I guess I just said work instead of play, but like <laughs> being at the limits of your abilities um, and recognizing that that's like a really fulfilling spot mm. to be in. Um, and so I would say that the times where I feel like I'm working are things that I know are going to be in service of like putting myself in that flow state, right? It's right. like, um, okay, I have to, you know, I want to write this next book and that's going to be really enjoyable and, and useful and fulfilling. Um, and one of the things that I have to do to get there is to, you know, figure out what the comparable titles are or figure out, you know, something that isn't going to yeah. put me in a flow state, but it feels, <laughs> it feels right. a little bit like work. Um, yeah, yeah. But I also feel like it's just, you know, if something feels like work, and you've got the luxury of kind of adjusting your life accordingly. How can you like make it, get yeah. it out of there, make <laughs> spend more time on the play stuff, right? Yeah. Well, I wanted to make the connection between all, all of what you talk about and subtract your book and this idea of a flow state. And I'm curious to know what connection is there, if, if any, between this idea that removing stuff is a powerful act and mm -hmm. the, 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 the power of getting into this kind of what Mikhail me Heike would call this flow state where, you know, oh you kind gosh. of lose, lose yourself and find yourself and you're kind of connected to the best of who you are, you know, time speeds up and slows down at the same time, all of that. So what, what if anything, is there a connection? Yeah, I thank you for pronouncing his name so that I don't. But, but I, I mean, gonna, just, there's about a six percent chance I've pronounced it correctly, but I oh, just went for it. <laughs> you went for it. Yeah, you were very confident in your pronunciation. The um, I think uh, the one of the arguments I make, I think I make it in the book even, is that the um, that there are some that subtracting is hard. One of the reasons we don't do it is it's hard because mm -hmm. it's additional work, right? Often t the subtractions that we're talking about, like when you're editors have to edit this podcast. It's like, you've recorded the podcast, it's good enough, you could put it out there. And now you're gonna do extra work to take stuff out. And so and often we like see this end state of the podcast. And you're like, Oh, look, Michael puts out these really great podcasts, it, it appears effortless, when in fact, there there is additional work that people aren't seeing. That's right. So that's a disadvantage. But I, I think that that work to get from good enough to even better through subtraction is often kind of puts you in a flow state. Like I think of it in terms of editing words. Yeah. And you know, so one of the attributes of a flow state is that it's, it's doable, right? You're mm -hmm. working at the limits of your ability, but it's not beyond your ability. Right. Um, and sometimes when I have like a blank page and can't think of what to write, that's beyond my ability. That's not a fun spot to be, but it is yeah. a fun spot to be in when you're like, okay, you've got <laughs> it basically there. And yeah. now you're, you're just improving by taking away. And it's like kind of working at that, you know, one little challenge that you're able yeah. to solve relatively quickly. And then another challenge that you can solve and move on. So I would, in that sense, I think subtracting can, yeah, you know, some of this extra subtracting that might seem like extra work can actually be quite enjoyable if we, if we pay attention to how we're experiencing it, that's, I don't know what your thoughts are on it, but that's my like small tie in. Yeah. I think that, I think there's, there's some truth to that. And here's what, um, here's what I'm noticing at the moment. So I'm, I'm on the tail end of a, of a new book. Uh -huh. And so 
we've gone through the easy editing where my editor goes, this is a bit crap, isn't it? And I'm like, that is a bit crap. It's, that's easy for me to lose. Yeah. And now she's cutting out the bits that I'm attached to. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, I've, I've, I've literally got a draft due to her by five o'clock today. Oh, and I'm just sitting with some bits where I'm like, she's like, why don't we cut this? And I'm, I'm noticing my resistance to, to that. Um, what's the connection lady between the, the discipline of less and grief? Yeah, that's interesting. I actually, I, I do think like, um, certainly losing things can bring grief, right? The mm. things that you really care about. Uh, mm. And I think that those are obvious, you know, a lot of the things that if you take them away, and they bring grief, maybe aren't things that you wanted to take away. But there's an, we have an emotional attachment to things that becomes mm. hard to take them away. And I think one way around that for your writing, and this is easier said than done, uh, is, you know, the, the emotional attachment, as much as possible, shifting that emotional attachment to the end product, right? Because mm -hmm. what you really want is a book that clearly communicates the things That's that right. are going to help your people yeah. that you're communicating with, uh, which is what, you know, you're obviously successful at. And so the, um, and then when that's the thing you have the emotional attachment to, it becomes easier to let go this little piece of it. That's, you know, Hey, maybe this is, is yeah. interesting on its own, but it's not, uh, it's not serving the, the larger vision. Yeah. I'm finding it just interesting to sit with, I mean, I have this commitment to a really great book at the end, you know, like I want to write the best book I can. I want to write the shortest book I can. That's still useful. Yeah. I want to create something that has a kind of a crystalline elegance and beauty to it. So yeah. you know, my, my dream of a book is it's, it's written so well that people find it hard to stop reading. Right. <laughs> they just, they find themselves, they've, they've read through it to the end of the book. And I was and like, that to me. And they're mad, it, right? Yeah, they're exactly. not mad or just like disappointed that it's over. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so I've got that, that sense of the bigger picture. And then I'm like, ah, it's hard to, it's hard to cut some of these things that, that Kendra, my editor is suggesting I cut. Um, what, what have you learned lady around how to better notice what might be removed? Yeah. I think one thing that's useful there is trying to, uh, zoom in and out basically uh, i mean so mm. like the zooming in is kind of obvious it's like okay pay really close scrutiny to this thing and you'll realize that it, it doesn't need to be there but the zooming out it's kind of like you um you can when you zoom out from how you're viewing a situation you might see that the thing that you're trying to do is being done somewhere else and i'll give you yeah. one of my favorite subtracting examples is the strider bike and these are the little bikes yes. that toddlers can ride because you talk about this in the book subtract as well of yeah course, which is great. Uh, yeah but the, the the reason toddlers can ride them is because the wheels have been removed or not, not the wheels the, the pedals and the drivetrain <laughs> um yeah. and so the toddlers propel along like a flintstone vehicle um and i i one of the key breakthroughs there yes you had to think of subtracting the pedals but the reason that that works 
is because you see something in the toddler, right? You have mm. to add the the human to the system there. And then you realize, oh, the toddler can propel, which isn't super surprising. We know they have a lot of energy, but the toddler can also balance, um, which right. is a more surprising thing. And so by zooming out there and like seeing more of the situation, you realize, oh, we don't actually need the training wheels to provide balance. Um, so yeah, I think- uh, That's helpful. Playing around with the- the perspective you're using of the situation helps you realize what, and it, yeah. you know, kind of goes back also I was to our book example, right? It's like, if you zoom out to the whole book, then it's not yeah. as critical, this one little piece. Have you come across ways to help people develop that capacity to zoom out? Because huh. it is, um, it's hard. I when I remember it, I'm like, well, that was obvious. <laughs> and when I don't remember it, I just don't remember it. And I miss the opportunity to see the more holistic pattern or the more, the bigger picture and therefore gain a different perspective around that. How have you learned or have you taught others to better able to see a different picture? Yeah, that's a beautiful question. I think, um, we talk a lot about like systems thinking in my class. And I mean, there's mm. a lot of definitions for that, but I mean, there's a great book called thinking in systems by, uh, Donella Meadows. That's kind of a cult classic. Uh, and you know, so systems is just kind of seeing the big picture, seeing how things are related to each other, as opposed to just like looking at the individual parts. And I mean, there's a little more to it than that, but the, those kind of methods, I think, really help us mm. uh, kind of look at situations at a different level than mm -hmm. we normally do. Uh, there's a, yeah, Thinking in Systems is the best kind of go-to book about it. There's right. also some really cool videos on the internet that I use in my class from, there's a place called the Complexity Lab, and they have these short YouTube videos about systems thinking that I, yeah. I think are helpful. That's why I assign them to students. And yeah. yeah. And do you have, do you have any specific ways you remember to do that in your own day-to-day -day life? Or is it now just a, you've, you've just built that capacity? Oh, I don't know that I have the capacity. I could be just, I'm like you, I like, who knows where I'm missing it. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, um, uh, some tools, I guess, like using the five whys kind of helps with that. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, you've yeah. got the, you know, why am I doing this? Ask why again, ask why yes. again. And it kind of, that's, that's effectively having you like zoom out conceptually. Um, like looking for, I mean, this is another coin termed by Danella Meadows, but like leverage points, like, so where are the most mm -hmm. effective places to intervene in a system? That's yeah. something that I practice. And, um, it, you know, it's kind of, go ahead. Yeah. Well, that's helpful. Yeah. Um, one of the stories I, I loved in the book was, uh, you know, you talking about a particular tricky course that you were doing at university and right. how you were, you know, you were scraping a C average and you're like, if I, if I fail to pass this, it's, it shuts off all sorts of opportunities ahead of me. And come the, come the final exam this critical exam you had to pass, you did really, really well. And, uh, you know, to, your vaguely your surprise and your professor's surprise and probably your classmate's surprise because you hadn't been doing that well beforehand. Yeah. And you talk about you'd figure out you'd figured out the essential thing to know in all of that. How do you how do you do that? <laughs> how do you? <laughs> I mean, it's like it reminds me of that quote around 
finding simplicity on the other side of complexity. Yes. Where you're like, you know what? I I started sim- simple, but too simplistic. Right. You didn't know you, anything. You, yeah. you move into complexity and you go, it's, it's all a bit overwhelming. And then there's this, for me anyway, this kind of process of needing or, or working the material and uh, a, a sense of simplicity emerges from that. And you're like, I'm, I think I'm seeing what's essential here. I'm, I'm wondering how you, you build that capacity. Yeah, I think I was like one of the things I was fortunate about in my engineering career was getting or like engineering education career was getting the opportunities to do that. Right. right. It's like kind of so that class was really helpful, not necessarily because I used the equation was F equals MA. I never use that anymore. But it, it but the seeing that by working hard, doing the problems, but then also like keep going and figure out what the essence is, seeing that that's helpful kind of gives me more uh, motivation to, to do it in other parts of my life. So right. I think just knowing that, that it's there and that there, there are rewards for, for getting there. But also, I mean, again, I think this is one of the cool tensions about subtracting is that it's not easy, right? It's, it's actually more work. And it's, you know, mm. that's, that's a really, you told the story perfectly because it's a really easy story to mess up and say like, oh, he realized it was just this simple thing. And all along, you'd been making it confusing. It's like, no, he had been working all along, but uh, didn't get to the simplicity until right. later. And I think the, uh, you know, there are a lot of things like that where the, the it just requires the work. And again, it's fun work, but yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the other things I've been sitting with, and I think this ties back to what you touched on in your reading as well, is one way to hold less. And this idea of how do you figure out what's essential? How do you remove what's extraneous? Is the price you pay is a lack of input and incoming and adventure? Because you're like, how do I'm like, I'm trying to, I'm trying to reduce what's in my circle rather than add to what's coming in. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm wondering. First of all, do you feel, do you see that as a tension? But you know, I'm trying to figure out how do I find the balance between Baroque excess adventure, <laughs> adding stuff on yeah, and, and less and essential and elegance. Yeah. yeah. Less is not necessarily elegance. That's a hard one. I, I, uh, well, but it does bring up, it does allow me to point out that I'm agnostic on adding and subtracting. And I think if I had to choose one or the other, I would probably choose adding. And one of the big points is that, um, we don't have to choose. These are complementary approaches to making change. Oh, I would great. say uh, one cool framing that I heard recently is that, especially as it relates to information, if it's if you're the one going out there and getting it, uh, then it's great. But if it's information that's just being thrown at you and you're like soaking it in, like that, that that tends to be the information that's kind mm-hmm. of like clogging up our space. But I do also appreciate your point about adventure and because sometimes you just I mean you can't go searching for something that expands Mm -hmm. your boundaries or uh in the same way that you know something gets presented to you that that is new I mean so yeah so I think that um you know I think of it as in terms of like kind of controlling the information versus the other way around in terms of adding and subtracting information and then then yeah I think Maybe, I mean, your podcast is actually a good example of like how you set this up is a really cool way to keep your boundaries 
right. expanded, right? Because somebody comes and reads a book that <laughs> I've never you know, read you before. didn't tell them to read. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, exactly. And now you know about it and you can decide whether or not you want to read sure. it or not. I do that with graduate students a lot. I'm lucky enough to like work with PhD students and they all kind of have their own research project. And yeah. um, I, I try to give them a lot of flexibility, one, so that they have kind of ownership over their own process project, but also like selfishly, it's like, this is how I'm going to not be doing the same exact thing I was five yeah. years ago. Yeah. You know, here's what, here's what I'm taking from, from your answer there, which is, and this is what you mentioned at the start of the book as well, which is less is a, less is a, is an action and it's yes. work. Yeah. It's not an outcome, which right. is just a reduced amount of stuff. Right. And what I'm hearing as you talk about, for instance, where do you get information from is, is it a, what's active and what's passive in terms of what's coming into your life? Yeah. And as you maintain action, you get a choice to kind of move between less and, you know, removing and adding in terms of mm -hmm. what serves you best in that moment. Yeah. I think, I mean, I, I don't you think about this when you're writing your book, right? Cause you have all this cognitive capacity devoted to the book. And I'm, I'm like, when I'm writing, I'm really conscious of what I'm reading and what, because I'm like, oh, this is going to seep into the book that, yeah, or, yeah. or if I read like Galliano, it's like so different and so much like that. I'm not going to try to make it go into my book. <laughs> no, it's, it's exactly right. You know, as I've been writing this new book, I've been, tr I've been deliberately trying to read beyond the kind of the topic of the book. Right. And what's interesting is I'm still finding solutions to writing problems I have in these other books. Right? You know, I'm like, I'm yeah. reading this random book of science fiction and I'm like, oh, that's really good. Okay, I could take that and use that and adapt that in a way to try and explain this thing, which I've so far only come up with banal cliches as a way of explaining. So it can definitely happen. That's awesome. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a double-edged sword or just a sword is, uh, yeah. but it's, um, <laughs> because it's, uh, you've got, uh, as part of me just wants to read a book and not think about how it relates to the other idea that I'm thinking yeah. about. Yeah. I so. know. Hey, ladies, I love the conversation with you. Thank you. Um, I've got a, fin a final question, which is, um, what needs to be said that hasn't yet been said in this conversation between us? Hmm. I think we've hit on all the important stuff as it relates to subtract. I don't think there's something that I would put in there that deserves more attention than the things you drew us to. So maybe I'll just leave it with like, go enjoy the world cup and, and yeah. <laughs> go Australia and go, go Canada. I've, go got Canada. Two, I've, I've got two That's countries. True. In yeah. The... Canada. That'll be interesting. This it is, is uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, we're, we're pretty excited. I mean, Australia sn snuck in at the, it was the, I think the last team to qualify. Uh -huh. But Canada topped the American group, yeah. and it's uh, we're we're hoping for good things from Canada. What's the what's the attitude in Canada about this? I mean, it's is there great. excitement? There is excitement, yeah. and you know, Canada's got a bunch of other sports that that right. normally take top billing, like hockey and basketball. Um, but I think at the moment there's a real, and because Canada is such a multi. Uh, national country that's true you've got a lot of world yeah. cups are normally great because in toronto where i live there's little portugal there's little italy there's little brazil yeah. i mean we've got all these places so there's this there's it's a vibrant time yeah but now you're going to see people with you know chilean and canadian flags on their uh, on their cars as they drive by so it'll be great 
Yeah, and that's why when I say go watch the World Cup, that's not me as a soccer fan. That's me as a citizen of the world. Yeah. It's like it's such a cool way to see all the other cultures. We are not wired to subtract. And I'm making the connection, and this is definitely connected. I wonder if we're also not wired to say no. <laughs> we want to add. We want to say yes. But there's always a price for adding. There are prizes and punishments for subtracting too, of course. But often we seem to be less conscious of the prizes and punishments for adding on. We just keep thinking, sure, I can top this up. What was powerful for me, I think, in this conversation was the reminder that if you want to get into the flow state, the flow state being that state that the psychologist at Csikszentmihalyi uh, name for when you're at your best, when you're accessing your genius, when deep work comes easy, when time speeds up and slows down. Well, as Lady said, if you want to access that space, that zone, that moment, it often requires subtraction. In other words, when you don't have the discipline, and the focus, and the courage, and the bravery to make the choices to remove the unnecessary and the extraneous, well, that gets in the way of you being your best self, doing your best work, and unlocking your genius. A couple of interviews to suggest if you like this one, you can build on the insights from here. Andrea Small, who um, has written a great book on ambiguity, she's uh, part of the D School in Stanford. That uh, interview is called A Beginner's Guide to Ambiguity. And David Noor, a friend of mine, a consultant, talks about freedom in constraints. You can see playing with these parameters of design in, in all three of these interviews. If you want more of Lady Klotz, the best place to go is just go straight to his website, ladyklotz.com. I'll spell that for you because it's, it's a name, uh, not as complicated as Bungay Stanya, but still, Lady, L-E-I-D-Y, Klotz, K-L-O-T-Z, or Z, depending on where you are in the world. Lady Klotz, or one word, dot com. Thanks for being a listener. Thanks for being a star. Thanks for being awesome. Thanks for doing great. Thanks for loving the podcast if you love it. Thanks for passing on particular interviews to friends of yours that you want them to listen to because that is honestly my favorite way to, to grow the podcast listenership, word of mouth. Thanks for all you bring to the world.